2: Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Rolling on the floor laughing is a thing. I can I've seen, you know, we've all seen people do it. I've done it. I've kidding. <laughs> For me, now the work is to want what I have, even kinda of shitty stuff. You know, that's my work. It's it's imperfect. So let me ask you a question about actors because you are I hate them. Yeah, me too. We are old fuddy-duddies. We go to sleep at 10, mm-hmm. we wake up at 6. We go to bed at 8, oh, so well, there we are go. more fuddy-duddies than you. You are the fuddy-duddiest. <laughs> yes. Welcome to Go Ask Allie. I'm Allie Wentworth. Now, one of the most requested topics by listeners is making friends as adults. So for all you listeners out there, today's your lucky day. As important as food, oxygen, and water, friendship. You know... Everybody has struggled with friendship, how we attach ourselves to people, how we detach ourselves to people. I know for me that my friendships are as meaningful and integral to my life as my husband and my children and everything else. And friendship is a very big subject in my house for me, because I hold my friendships so dear. But also, I have two teenage daughters who are constantly trying to chart the waters of friendship and all the pain and elation that goes with it. And my mother, who at 88 years old, has found herself a widow and with many of her friends deceased. So how do we maintain friendships? How do we make new friendships? My guest today is Dr. Marissa G. Franco. She's a psychologist, professor, and author of Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. Marissa is a professor at the University of Maryland and speaks on belonging at corporations, universities, and more. Welcome, Marissa. So happy to be talking with you. I am so glad you're here because I find that female friendship is such an integral part of all of our lives. And I take my friendships very seriously. And I have to say that my my friendships have caused me even more pain than my love relationships in the past. So I just ate your book right up platonic how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends because there's so much there and there's so much there that I want to give my daughters too because obviously they're younger than me and they're dealing with friendships in a different way that I am as an old lady now (laughs) Um, but the most important the theme in your book is really attachment and the whole theory of attachment so let's let's just dive into that right away
3: yeah. Well, first of all, Allie, I'm, I'm so honored to hear that you want to share it with your daughters. That really touches yes. me.
2: Oh, I sent your book, Platonic, to my daughter in college because oh. I feel like they're always struggling with friendships. And, you know, from from kindergarten on, you're, you're constantly dealing with how you attach to people. Yeah. So let's start with the attachment theory. So attachment theory is basically the idea that in our
3: early lives with our parents, we begin to develop a certain template for how people will treat us. And after that, we, we develop that template. We engage in like confirmation biases where we see people interacting with us in ways that match that template and almost ignore times that they don't. Right. And then we build a number of strategies in reaction to these assumptions that we think people In reaction to these ways that we think other people will treat us. So, you know, what does that mean in a more practical way? If you're anxiously attached, your template says, people are going to abandon me unless I cling, cling, cling close to them, right? And so, you know, anxiously attached people, they often misfire and think they're being rejected even when they're not. They often give too much in friendships because, again, they need, they feel like they need to, to feel worthy, to feel like they'll keep other people around. They don't stand up for themselves. They don't have boundaries. They don't bring up conflict because, again, fear that other people are going to abandon you. Sometimes they can also be quite demanding because of the sense that I need you to do this to prove that I am worthy to me, right? And, and, and sometimes they don't necessarily consider other people have different needs outside of them or reacting to them in ways that aren't necessarily personal, right? And then you have avoidantly attached people. Their template, their early childhood was usually... I got food, I got water, I got shelter, but there was nothing emotionally. It was sort of like emotional neglect. I was told to handle things on my own, you know, be a big boy, be a big girl. And what that means is that avoidantly attached people are very uncomfortable with emotions, very uncomfortable with intimacy. Their template says other people can't be trustworthy So they tend to invest less in friendship. They tend to not be as vulnerable in friendship. They tend to ghost more. Um, You know, people that are friends with them feel like I've known them for so long, but I don't feel like I really know them because they're not necessarily vulnerable or I don't feel reciprocity. I feel like I'm putting in all this effort, but the other person isn't because avoidantly attached people fundamentally enjoy friendship less because they see it as a liability or a responsibility, right? And then you have securely attached people. Who have learned in their early relationships, and again, it's it starts with your parents or caretakers, but it evolves, right? So it's not just your early relationships. And they trust that they can build relationships with people. They trust that other people like them. They are comfortable being vulnerable, but in a way that's that oversharing, right? If someone... Mm-hmm withdraws from them or doesn't like them, they kind of walk away instead of work harder, which you tend to see with more anxiously attached people. They're better at initiating friendships, less likely to dissolve friendships. Their friendships are are very stable, right? And that's why I call them like the super friends of connection. And I think what we learn from attachment theory and what I argue in platonic is that our personality is fundamentally a reflection of our past experiences of connection. Whether we are open, warm, trusting, critical, aggressive, you know, generous, all of these are predicted by whether we've connected well in the past. But not only that, then who we are affects how we connect. The people that are best at connecting now typically have healthier history of relationships, which have given them the the template that other people are trustworthy, that they can connect with people that allows them to continue to connect. Whereas if you've had a very difficult history that you haven't processed, it can lead you with a set of beliefs and a set of strategies that actually make it a little bit more difficult to form relationships and friendships in the future.
2: Okay. So can somebody be born with anxious attachment just sort of based on their personality or is it environmental?
3: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, Something I want to clarify, because I tell people about attachment theory and they're like, good for those people with healthy parents. Like, okay, you know, (laughs) I'm out of luck then. And I don't think that's what I'm trying to convey, especially for me as someone who's gone from anxious to more secure. Your attachment can fundamentally change over time. Some research finds that it's more likely to change than stay the same. After you, you know, you have different relationships that that kind of adjust and sculpt your template over time, right? And I think knowing about our attachment style isn't deterministic that we're going to be doomed because we had doomed relationships in the past. But instead, it allows us to instead say, nobody can be trusted. You know, everybody's going to abandon me. And, and if you feel like that is the truth that's out there in the world, you have no agency. Mm-hmm. You're just. Powerless, right? But when you know how your own behavior can influence people in ways that make it more likely that your fears are going to come to fruition, because you sort of behave in ways that make these behaviors more likely to be true, then you can change your behaviors and you can develop really good relationships with people. So I hope that it can be more empowering. But related to your question, Ali, it there is a genetic component to attachment. Um, there's this theory in psychology called the orchid hypothesis, which is basically the idea that some of us are more vulnerable to our environments, whether good or bad, right? So if these these more sensitive folks um, genetically, right, are in a good environment, they're gonna thrive. If they're in a bad environment, they're gonna be devastated, right? Mm-hmm. Others of us are kind of like, we have less of a range. Like we're gonna be kind of similar, we're not as affected by our environment. So our outcomes are gonna be like sort of similar-ish, whether we have a really good environment or a bad one, right? And so there is that genetic difference, which which is partially how much are we absorbing our environment that that differs between a lot of us.
2: Yeah, because I think, you know, for instance, I'm thinking about one of my daughters who, you know, the second she came out in the hospital, she was mommy, mommy, mommy. And she was a clingy baby. She wouldn't let anyone else hold her. And, you know, I think she falls under the category of anxious attachment. And it's, it's, you know, maybe I coddled her too much, but (laughs) I don't look at it as, oh, did we not give her enough love? Did we not, you know, nurture her enough? We did in huge amounts. She literally was born like that, like Mm -hmm. as a baby. Whereas my other daughter was like, hey, put me in the crib. I don't care. I'm fine. And she has, (laughs) you know, she has more of the calmer, kind of less attached uh, personality. And so in some ways, I do think it's genetic. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think what you're talking about is uh, temperament. And the psychology Mm -hmm. research which is like we're kind of born with a certain temperament that then can sort of interact with our environment in certain ways. Right. Because temperaments are also going to draw something different out of a parent. Right.
2: Yes, absolutely. You might
3: react to your babies differently because they have they're reacting to you differently. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. it's, uh, really interesting how these two things can intersect.
2: Yes. And so uh, one of the things I am fascinated by in your book is the idea of in terms of friendship, platonic love right? So platonic love is the love I have, let's say, for my girlfriends. And even though they lack sex and passion, they feel to me just as integral to my life and as strong as a romantic relationship. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And actually, I think in platonic, I was interested in blurring the lines between romance, and um, friendship. Because Mm -hmm. Angela Chen, she has this really great book, Ace, and she kind of talks about how, you know, in the asexual community, there's very much a a distinction between being sexually attracted to someone and romantically attracted to someone, right? And so sexual attraction is I want to have sex with you. Romantic attraction is I'm passionate about you. I idealize you. I think you're amazing. You feel like my soulmate, right? And so when we look at relationships between woman friends in particular, we see them saying things like you are my soulmate and all I want to do is is spend my time with you. Right. And that is sort of sounds like it's kind of on the romantic spectrum. And in fact, throughout our history, um, you know, in in the early 1800s, 1700s, there was the sense that the genders are so distinct that you can only find this true and deep intimacy with your friends who share the same gender as you, kind of like romance being more of a part of friendship than it was marriage, right? And so Mm -hmm. at that time, friends were holding hands, friends were sharing beds, friends were cuddling, right? Because all of that... Um, oh, that was normal at that time. Now, of course, our script for friendship is a lot more limited, right? But I think if we look at, if we can differentiate or take a fine tooth comb between the differences between all these different forms of love, we can see that romantic relationships, romantic feelings are kind of, I would argue, even normal without a lot of particularly close and intimate friendships.
2: Okay. So let me ask you this, because this is advice that I've given my friends and You can tell me it's probably wrong, and I'll make sure I edit this part out. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I say to my girlfriends that they shouldn't expect their partner to be their best friend because I feel like they are setting themselves up, let's say, when they first live with somebody or marry them, because I have found the game changer in my marriage, which is a very good marriage, was... That when I would go to my husband for a lot of kind of scaffolding he he just wasn't the person like I never was satiated by what I got back from him, but if I went to my girlfriends, you know they like to chew on some of the stuff I like to chew on for a, a lot longer, and yet my life path is with my husband and sort of the big issues I deal with with my husband and obviously have sex with my husband, but my girlfriends. I've sort of kept for a lot of the other emotional stuff that I sometimes think is too inundating for my husband. Yeah. Meaning, I say to my girlfriends, don't necessarily go into marriage with this idea that this person is your all, your best friend, your lover, your everything. Am I right or am I wrong? Mm.
3: I agree with the idea that your spouse should not be your everything. And in fact, I argue that being. In a healthy romantic relationship or healthy marriage, really requires you to have people to support you outside of that marriage because the research finds that when you're in conflict with your spouse, it disrupts your stress hormone release in unhealthy ways unless you have quality connection outside that marriage. That when you make a friend, not only are you less depressed, your spouse is less depressed too. Um, that people that you know related to what you said, Ali, engage in emotion ships which means you go to different people to help you work through different emotions. They have higher overall well-being. That women who have close friends out of the marriage are more resilient to strife within the marriage, whereas people that only rely on a spouse they're very devastated when things mm-hmm. go wrong, right? Their mental health, according to the research, is just more impacted by the natural ebbs and flows in that relationship. And what that means is that if something goes wrong and you're completely off kilter, it's harder to heal from it. Whereas if something goes wrong and you go out and you get some support, you return to your relationship in a centered place to be like, we're not enemies. Let's work this out. I've processed some of my feelings. I'm not in a reactive place. That is such a great resource for your marriage. And so I definitely agree with you that this has been a truth throughout our entire species that somehow we've forgotten in recent decades that we've always needed an entire community to feel whole. And And so I hope that my message of friendship is really, really important while I came to it going through breakups and feeling like I feel so bad in these breakups because I feel like romantic love is the only love that makes me lovable. And I'm questioning whether that's true because I see how much my friends love me, right? But I think this message of we have to maybe see love on less of a hierarchy so that we can value and put effort into our platonic partnerships, just like we do our marriage, right? I think it benefits all of us, whether we're single or whether we're married.
2: I would go so far as to say that in the past what I found was so kind of helpful to my well-being and you talk about a wellness group at the beginning of the book um was I've had versions of that I've had lunch clubs I've had book clubs um I have basically now a like a menopause club with a group of women my age that is so the sole purpose is to support each other and you know when somebody's parent dies or a divorce or you know any kind of life shift we kind of circle the wagons and and i think it's so important and i think that there's something about the the group of women that kind of quilt together this kind of support that is impossible to find anywhere else yeah I also love a group, you know, monthly
3: Spanish speaking group and a biweekly dinner club. And, you know, I talk about the wellness group. I, I love having groups for everything. But what we're doing when we create those groups is that we are creating the infrastructure for friendship to happen organically. So this sociologist, Rebecca Adams, she argues that for friendship to happen organically, we need repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, which is cool. Gym, Mm -hmm. lunch, recess, right? But as adults, we don't often inhabit those environments unless we seek them out intentionally because work, we're not often vulnerable at work. So we're seeing each other repeatedly. We're only showing a professional, quote unquote, side of ourselves. We don't actually know each other, right? Mm -hmm. So if we rely on that template from childhood, we are going to be lonely. And in fact, as adults, a study found that people that think friendship happens without effort are more lonely five years later, whereas those that see it as taking effort are less lonely, right? And so when we create these groups, right, we are giving ourselves continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. We are creating the ingredients for our friendships to sort of take off and strengthen on our own without us having to continue to prod at them in the same way.
2: And it's interesting because I have a my mother now who is in her late 80s, she was somebody that had very strong, incredible friendships in her lifetime. And she's at a point now, and you talk about widows in your book, but she's at a point now where her husband is dead and all her close female friends are dead. And Mm. one of the things that she and I talk about a lot is how she at 88 can find community now. Mm. You know what I mean? Because she's not even out and about. And I said, I know that this sounds simplistic, but, you know, you should invite people over to play Uno, you know, their art classes and groups like and it used to those sort of things when you would hear people say sounded so kind of perfunctory and like, oh, yeah, OK, I'm not going to join a group. But as I get older, I realize, yeah, yeah, you kind of have to, you know what I mean? And for her well-being, You're gonna have to. she needs to figure out a way in her late 80s now to find friendship and mine that and as much as she you know needs to get her heart checked and bone density all of it exactly there's a lot more to come after this short break
0: escape to summer with victoria's secret
2: And we're back. It's funny what you were saying, too, earlier about vulnerability, because I have found that, and this is not gender prejudice, just in my my life, uh, I have noticed that a lot of my male friends have a fear of vulnerability, and therefore their friendships aren't as close. And even my husband, I would say that that's true with him. Yeah. And you
3: are right that vulnerability, first of all, um, men are about half as likely to to access support within their friendships in a given week than women. And that that really does hinder men's friendships. You know, men men have tend to have these more companionate friends where you're hanging out around an activity. Mm -hmm. And that is a great form of friendship, too. Right. But it has its limitations. We've seen that in the pandemic, right? If you have friends that you're just hanging out with to, to play golf and you can't see each other, someone moves or you have a pandemic, right? Which hopefully doesn't happen again. But, you know, if people move or they become long distance. then obviously your ability to maintain that connection is very limited. And fundamentally being vulnerable it does increase the depth and the closeness. We know from the research that people that intimately self-disclose are liked more than other people, people that express negative emotion, although we think you know friendship is positive vibes only, they actually are more likely to make friends <laughs> in their tradition in their transition to college. And we also know that it's very necessary for our mental health and well-being, right? That throughout the book, I think you'll see that all of the things that we do that create connection also tend to improve our mental health and well-being, vulnerability included right so people that conceal tend to be more concealing of information about themselves they experience more depression more suicidality one study that looked at 106 factors that predict depression found that having a confidant someone you're confiding in, is is the number one factor that prevents depression and so i think in the in american culture we kind of have this very false ideal that to be strong means I never need anyone and I'm handling things on my own at all times, right? And the research finds that people that are like that, they tend to experience more physical health issues. They're not releasing their emotions. So they manifest physically, they experience more, you know, headaches, more gastrointestinal issues. It's not that they go away or those emotions aren't there. It's just that they're, they're kind of wreaking havoc on you physically. It's it, even if you don't, if you can't necessarily be aware of it mentally, right? And so when we see the people that actually are the most resilient, it's the securely attached people, and so that security comes from I shared myself with other people, they responded in a loving and accepting way,
2: and I internalize that into being part of my sense of self. But I would say with the anxiety attachment, and I can speak for myself. But with anxiety attachment, there's obviously the fear of vulnerability. But what happens when you are vulnerable with somebody else? You express a secretive part of yourself or, you know, vulnerable part of yourself and it freaks them out or it causes them to pull away. Then you, you, it's like, it's more damage than if you hadn't. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, you're absolutely right. And you're right that it's actually better to not be vulnerable if the other person isn't safe. But you don't know that, right? Yeah. And you don't know that. But I also want to differentiate between oversharing and vulnerability. Um, Anxiously attached people, right? They're, They're afraid that other people are going to reject and abandon them. So often their vulnerability can come from a place of, I want to test you to see if you'll abandon me rather than I feel safe with you. And as a reflection of that relationship, I'm then going to be vulnerable with you, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it it isn't as authentic because it's like, I'm doing this to test you and see your reaction and, and decide whether you'll stay around. Whereas a vulnerable act is more like, I'm discerning that I feel safe in this moment. And that is what is is pushing me to share my internal world with you. And so I think how we understand ourselves, whether I'm being vulnerable or oversharing is, is this coming from a place of fear? right? Is this coming from a place of fear that you're going to pull away from me Um, versus when I'm vulnerable? Is this coming from a sense of safety, right? Two Mm -hmm. different things that differentiate those two acts. But I also want to say, avoidantly attached, there was this study that looked at people answering, you know, 36 questions. It was, it even got to the New York Times, 36 questions to fall in love. When I read that study, I found that in general, if we go through these 36 questions of deepening intimacy with each other, like, when's the last time you cried? People feel more connected to each other, right? It generates a lot of closeness. But what we found is that when someone was avoidantly attached, that didn't happen. <laughs> the vulnerability did not create connection. And that's another important thing to recognize. Sometimes your vulnerability didn't land, and it, it wasn't necessarily because of your issue per se. I mean, it could be, right? We just talked about the oversharing. But it could also be because of someone else's baggage. Like, they're not really able to sit with feelings like avoidantly attached people. They're not able to sit with emotions. They're not able to be open to connection without feeling overburdened or without feeling like people are putting all this pressure on them. And that comes from their past. So I think it's also important to recognize sometimes our vulnerability may not go right. And that's not necessarily our fault. What we can do in those moments is observe, take note and decide
2: in the future, I'm going to be vulnerable with someone that does make me feel safe. That's a great point. So tell me what you mean when you say friendship is the underdog of relationships.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean that in so many ways, our cultural messages have focused around, I'm going to say romantic relationship because that's the standard language for now, right? But we know, you know, the complexities of that, right? Yeah. You know, people always ask you, when are you going to get married? Right. When are you going to find the one? When are you going to find your soulmate? When are you going to find your person? When we talk about friends, it's like we'll say things like we're just friends, signifying that, oh, if we're friends and not involved sexually, romantically, then it's an inferior relationship. Or let's be more than friends, signifying again that that there's this hierarchy Mm -hmm. that we have to relationships. And if people decide to center their life around friendship, it's single people, there's a stigma attached to that, right? While marriage does improve well-being, single people who socialize well, who are well socialized, who have larger social networks are actually happier than the average married person. And so I'm interested in, I guess, disrupting this hierarchy because I think it would allow all of us to be a little bit more creative and ask ourselves, what are the forms of connection that I do want in my life? What makes me feel fulfilled, right? Instead of feeling this pressure to, I'm going to get married to this person, then we're going to become very insular, right? It's just going to be this nuclear unit, right? Like we get these these strong cultural messages and they're so strong that they kind of, they, they fundamentally alter how we relate to our friends, where I think... We see friendship as inferior, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we're less vulnerable, we invest less time, we're less affirming, we're not as intentional than we would be with a spouse. Inevitably, that relationship's going to be inferior. It's not because friendship is inferior. It's because you're treating that relationship differently because you have this understanding. And so I think, you know, in this society where we are so, so lonely, we just can't afford to throw a morsel of connection away. And I think so much, so often, we're just throwing friendship away. We're not being intentional. We're not putting in the effort. We're not making it a priority. Mm-hmm. And I think it would benefit us all, especially from this very disconnected state that we're in, if we started to see friendship for the value that it could really bring to our
2: lives. Well, especially because you say that, you know, friendship helps us figure out who we are. So, which is, you know, if you're saying that friendship through your life is like the building blocks of creating your character, then you know, you should both uh have great friendships and fail. At friendships too, have friendships that don't go well or, you know, break up or, you, you know, all those things in order for you to figure out sort of your own character. And ultimately, I would say your adult attachment, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I do argue that, you know, I think there is this intimate link between the self and how we form friendships. And You know, our friends, as they advertise different ways of being in the world to us, show us who we could be, right? Show Mm -hmm. us all of the options that are available to us for how we could be in this world. And I think when we're just around one person, we shrink. I mean, I felt this in the pandemic being with a partner at the time that I felt like my relationship with myself had shrunk in some way. It was like I, my, my identity had sort of thinned out, right? Like I had one experience of myself because each person calls forth a different experience of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Around this person, I'm like this. I'm around this person, I'm like this. And so just being around one person, it was, it was kind of like straight jacketed version of my own identity. And so I think being around a community helps us develop a more dimensional, a richer
2: sense of our own identities and our own selves. And do you think, you know, just because of age and experience, can you outgrow friendships? I mean, you talk about creating new friendships when you're an adult. Absolutely. Can you also let go of friendships?
3: Yeah. So this is going to be the reality that even if you are comfortable with your friendships now, chances are there will be another time in your life when you might have to create friendships again. Some people move. Obviously, that can be disruptive for friendships. But another study just found that every seven years, we lose about half our friends. Um, So that just sort of means,
2: yeah, isn't that wild? That seems like a lot.
3: (laughs) Yeah, the, the friends that we have now may not be the friends we have seven years from now or so. The caveat being the longer that you've kept a friendship, the more likely it is to keep going. And so the newer friendships, the younger friendships are a lot more likely to shed. And I think it is important to realize, first of all, that that's natural and normal, right? Because I think a lot of us can feel shame around this. It can feel very isolating. Like here's this person I thought would always be my person and Mm -hmm. they're not anymore. But everybody's going through this, not just you. And, um, but also the other point that I want to make is that your friendships will also ebb and flow. And so there could be an ebb period. And if you don't assume in that ebb period that the friendship is over, it's going to make it more likely to continue. Mm -hmm. There was a study on long distance friends that found that perceiving them as flexible and not fragile, like, Oh, maybe we don't talk for a few months, but I still assume that I could reach out at any time. Right. That that actually promotes the friendship being maintained and continuing. So I think that's also important. There there are two different issues. Like we have incompatibility, which is contributing to our separation, but we also have normal ebb and flows of relationships. And in those cases, when it's not driven by major jarring incompatibilities, then we can maintain hope for the friendship returning at a later time in life when we both have the availability for it.
2: All right. So let's go through the different steps of making a new friend in our adulthood. Yeah. So first I would tell you, Allie, I hope you know that friendship
3: in adulthood does not happen organically. And if you believe that, you're more likely to be lonely. So I want you to know that you're going to have to try and you're gonna to have to put in an effort. Here's what might be coming up for you. That sounds very scary. I'm worried I'll be rejected. Here's what I wanna share with you. We're less likely to be rejected than we think. When strangers interact and they're asked, how much do you think the other person likes them? Their estimations tend to be inaccurate and more negative than the truth. So this is called the liking gap, right? We, we um, erroneously think people like us less than they actually do, right? The other thing that I'm going to say to prepare your mindset for going out there and interacting is to assume people like you. Reason being, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy called the acceptance prophecy. The acceptance prophecy is the finding that when researchers told people they'd go into a group and be accepted or liked based on their personality profile. This was a lie, by the way. But they found that people became warmer, open, and friendlier and they actually were more likable. So I want you to start assuming people like you, right? Okay. And now that your mindset is right, I I think we can go two different avenues. One, reconnect with people from your past. Because the research finds First of all, that people appreciate that reconnection text more than we assume, but also that when we reconnect with people from our past, we have more trust. So the relationship moves more quickly. Okay. Right? So is there anyone you've fallen out of touch with who you would have preferred to stay in touch with, right? Can you reach out to them? But the next thing I tell you to do is to pursue a hobby and community with other people. Reason being that when people are pursuing hobbies in community, they are they tend to be more open to friendship, right? One of the reasons that we tend to pursue these hobbies in community is to meet people. It's like our covert way of saying I want friends is I join this kickball league, right? Or this art class, right? I didn't do it alone for a reason. And joining something that's repeated over time, which is not a not a workshop, but a, you know, a class that's more repeated, you're going to capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect. Our unconscious tendency to like people who are more familiar. So when these researchers planted women into a psychology class, students didn't remember any of the women, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most classes, about 20% more than the woman that didn't show up for any. Mm -hmm. And so what that tells us is that when you first join this group, it's going to be awkward. You're not going to trust. You're going to feel weary. Mere exposure effect has not set in. But as you stay in this group for two to three months, those feelings are going to change. They're going to like you more. You're going to like them more, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I also suggest when you join that group, you're overcoming something called overt avoidance, which is our tendency to not show up because we're scared. But you also have to overcome covert avoidance, which is our tendency to show up physically, but check out mentally. So I want to make sure that when you get to that group, you're not just on your phone, that you are actually introducing yourself and saying, Hey, I'm Marissa. It's great to meet you. How have you liked this hiking group so far? Remember, you're assuming people like you here. And then lastly, generating exclusivity with someone in the group, finding someone in the group who you like, asking them to hang out outside of the group. So you have particular memories and experiences with that person that you don't share with the rest of the group. That is what builds friendship.
2: Yeah, I like to, I mean, I I actually have made a lot of new friends in my adulthood. Um, And I found also that the older I get, I'm much bolder about pursuing friendships Hmm. than I was when I was young. You know, now I'm just like, I got nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Like what? Yeah. And I also find that what you said before earlier, they people are more receptive. Like you think you're going to reach out and they're going to be like, what, what is this fucking stalker doing? You know, but yet they're like, <laughs> I would love to go for a walk. You know, I'd love to. Yeah. Like, I'm always surprised when I'm received that way, yeah. you know, because you're you're always, you know, kind of your fourth grade self, no matter how old you are, when you're sort of reaching out and making a friend.
0: And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with a limited-edition bombshell-escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God
2: Welcome back to Go Ask Ali. You talk about intentional generosity, which is something that I've tried to always feed and water in myself. Um, and one kind of friend I like to be is a creative friend. So I make my own sort of holiday mm-hmm. cards. I love to bake people's birthday cakes. I love. I have found that it has given me immense pleasure to be an intentional intentionally generous friend, I guess you would phrase it. Oh, that is really lovely. And
3: um, I think what we're really getting at here is something called the theory of inferred attraction, which is the idea that people like people that they think like them. So anything that you do that shows people I care about you, you matter to me, you're important, those are going to generate friendship. And I think for me, when I was younger, I had this misconception that to make friends, I have to be entertaining. I have to be insightful. I have to say something funny all the time, right? And in fact, people report this entertaining piece being the least important value they look for in a friendship.
2: No, I'm screwed. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you do do the most important thing, which is making people feel like, they matter. Yes. That's what people want. It's called ego support. And you know I think humor can be a way into that, right? Yeah. Um, of making people feel like they matter. And so the more, I think when we feel really insecure about belonging, we get into this place that's a little bit self-centered because we're in pain. I think pain is inherently self-centered. We don't have the resources to think of other, other people where we think... Have they reached out to me? Have they welcomed me? Have they initiated with me? Whereas people who are really good at friendship, they think a lot more about what they have they done for others. Have I made them feel welcome? Have I initiated with them? Have I made them feel cared for, right? And they don't expect that people are going to invest in them if they they see themselves aren't, haven't been accountable for that same level of investment. So I think sometimes we need to gently, kindly, empathically check ourselves, right? If our friendships aren't working out, what have I done to make other people feel loved and valued, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than what have people done for me to make me feel loved and valued because it starts with I'm making them feel loved and then it tends to be a sort of more reciprocal cycle.
2: How do you feel about the term best friend? Like when you're young it it's territorial and but when you get older, I I've noticed that women my age have a very strong reaction to the term best friend. You know, I think we
3: need quality deep, intimate connections, whether that has to include the label best friend or not. I don't think it's completely necessary, but I will say the value of it is that Friendship is so freaking ambiguous. We don't know what we can expect from our friends. We don't know how invested they are with us. There's no formal ceremony, right, set of expectations that come with being a friend. And friend can be anywhere from someone who's nearly an acquaintance that you met for coffee once. I mean, Facebook further diluted our perception of what it means to be a friend. And so we're all working from such different definitions, which means we all have different expectations from each other that come out of these different definitions. And those different expectations is what part of what can create problems. Problems in friendship, right? So, what I like about Best Friend is that it clarifies some of those expectations. It says, okay, we are going to make each other a priority. Maybe we are going to engage in mutual support seeking. When I have a need, I know I can feel comfortable reaching out to you. That allows us to kind of calibrate our expectations of each other a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think that, yeah. I I also think um, I did this interpersonal exercise. And what was kind of interesting about it was to see how much time we give the toxic people as compared to a lot of the people that are so close to us yep wow th- there's as much airtime for these people that make me feel bad as this circle around me and it it actually seeing it visually made me kind of readjust you know my uh, my own landscape of friendship in general
3: yeah i think two things in relation to that I don't know, we're just often kind of passive in friendships, not necessarily discerning. Um, You know, this is what I've realized, too, having a large network of friends. I begin to ask myself, who do I want to invest in more deeply? Right. It it can't be that whoever reaches out to me, I'm going to go along with because then I'm not able to cultivate and curate my friendships in the ways that I want. Right. And so. That, I think, is very often occurrence, that we hang out with people who it's easiest to rather than who we want to go deeper with. Um, And so that requires some discernment. But I'll also say, for anxiously attached people, there are many different stress mechanisms that we might use. Fight, flight, freeze, but also fawn. Fawn is, if someone's threatening to me, I try to get them to like me. And anxiously attached people tend to experience this more. So they actually are attracted to people that are less engaged with them, that like them less because, oh, this triggers my fawn response. So now I'm going to engage more and try to hang out with them more and try to get them to like me. Right. And that's part of the template of the anxiously attached that I am going to have to earn love. Right. Anxiously attached people can sometimes feel like someone just likes me. What do they know? (laughs) What do they know? This is weird. You know, it's suspicious almost, right? Whereas securely attached people, if someone makes them feel bad, they walk away instead of working harder. So our
2: attachment style could play into that as well. I mean, I wonder if sometimes it's very simplistic, but one thing I say to my daughters when it comes to friendship is find the people that make you feel good. Mm, Exactly. Yes. I also think that when I'm 95, I want to not go to assisted living. I actually want to get a house and live with my girlfriends because I think I'll be happier. I um, truly believe this. I'll be happier and I'll live longer if I already create a community um, of people that make me feel good now. I love that. And I just love thinking more creatively about the potential of
3: friendship. There's been more talk about people who specifically in Gen Z choosing friends as life partners. Right. And um, just being a lot more creative around what we think friendship can do, because aside from sex, most of the things that you might look for from a spouse you can also look for from a friend there's really no reason not to aside from like a lack of creativity right so what sort of life do you want to live what sort of connections do you want to have what feels good for you rather than what is the script for how we are supposed to live right i think that is just going to fundamentally allow for our needs to be met and for us to feel so much better and so i think that just requires us to see friendship so much more expansively mm-hmm. and, and richly than how we have historically seen it.
2: Yes. And I, inspiration is one of my criteria for friendship. And so I guess we're going to be friends, Marissa, because you, re- you really inspired <laughs> me on this podcast. Oh, thank you. So Marissa, in the spirit of friendship, it is now your turn to ask me a question about anything.
3: I love this. So the tables have turned. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, you know, also as a psychologist, I'm always wanting to ask questions. Oh, you could listen. You can go deep if you want. I'm ready.
3: Thank you. <laughs> I am wondering what's something that you learned
2: about friendship that you didn't understand
3: 10 years ago?
2: I 10 years ago, I didn't understand my worth in a friendship, meaning I, I always felt so lucky that this person was my friend. And I didn't look at it like, well, they're lucky that I'm their friend. You know what I mean? I didn't see it as an equal relationship. Um, And I think it caused me a lot of pain. And I think it caused me to make bad decisions about who I spent my time with and who I did all those creative things for. Because I, I find in friendship, when you are one of my quote unquote people, I am an endless well of love. I I love to do things for my friends. It makes me so happy the way it does, you know, when I do things for my daughters. And so Mm. they, some of them became so one-sided that I had to move away from them. And Mm. it was usually somebody else saying like, why are you friends with that person? They don't treat you well. They don't. They don't call you on your birthday, you know, and so I started to realize, oh, wait a second, where am I in all this? Whereas now I'm very good at that. And I also That's reach awesome. out to new friendships, the way we talked about, with somebody that I can already tell through just through experience in living life, oh, this is a person I can tell who will be reciprocal and open and vulnerable with me.
3: I love that, Allie. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I can ask follow-up questions, but... uh,
2: (laughs) You you could, uh, I mean, it'll turn into a therapy this session. You'll be like, oh my God. Okay, one quick question. Yes, go ahead, (laughs) psychologist. First of all, uh, yes,
3: yes. Like having a sense of self-worth is so important for our friendships because we have to take risks in friendship, like reaching out to someone, right? If we don't feel worthy, we're not gonna wanna take those risks because we think people don't wanna hear from us, right? My follow-up question is... How did you develop that sense of worth in yourself?
2: How did I develop the sense of worth? It, I think it was a few things. I think it was almost like sexual relationships in the past, you know, of being hurt a bunch of times, of trying different types of people. I think the same can be said about friendship. There are certain types of people that I just could innately, like, just feel. On a visceral level, oh, I know what type of person that is, and I I sort of get a sense of how they are as a friend. I also think that there are certain things that I am attracted to in friends. There's a bunch of things that I learned, and I think I I learned it by befriending all different types of people. And I feel like now in my 50s, I have the greatest group of, of female friends, more so than I did when I was 40 or 30. Like, Yes. And a few of them are, are from many, many years that we just sort of live life together, I guess, as the kids call it, ride or die. And I still seek new friends out. Yeah, I really like your answer because
3: um, we develop our sense of self, not in isolation from people. But when we experience loving people that are safe, we begin to feel more worthy, right? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I'll stop with the follow-up questions, though I could ask more. I know I you could. <laughs> I'd, be in, I'd be in therapy for the
2: next four days. Thank you so much. This was so, your book is so great and insightful. And I did get two copies for my daughters, and I think everyone Yay. should read it. Because I think we tend to focus more on the sexual relationships more than our romantic friendships. And they exactly. And they are like oxygen and food and water. We need them. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Ali. Now, Dr. Marissa Franco's book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. I gave you but a sliver of the book. It is so full of interesting insights and information. So do yourself a favor and get the book because uh, my producer, Brooke, would not let me do a four-hour podcast. But I could have. Now, if you would like to follow Dr. Marissa, she is on Instagram at DrMarissaGFranco and her website, DrMarissaGFranco.com, and you can take a quiz to assess your strengths and weaknesses as a friend. If you'd like more info on what you heard in this episode, check out our show notes and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow me on Instagram at the real Allie Wentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic to dig into, I'd love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call or text me at 323-364-6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to podcast at gmail.com. And if you leave a question, you just might hear it on Go Ask Allie. Go Ask Ali is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story.
3: Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Zumo Play.